So we've dedicated time, effort, energy and resource to doing better, basically, or trying to do better for those communities that we had underserved in the past. Purpose Deep Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purposely with Lynn Araboglis. Lynn is the CEO of the Wellington Community Fund. She got the role in 2020 when the country was in a national lockdown and met her colleagues for the first time online. Since then, she's transformed the strategy of the organisation, much more focused on the hardest to reach communities, people who need their support the most. We have a wide-ranging conversation discovering her career in the government and how that's led her to a role in philanthropy. Enjoy the episode, share with friends, family and colleagues. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit subscribe. Enjoy. Lynn Araboglos, welcome to Purposely Podcast. Mark. Kia ora. You're the CEO of the Wellington Community Fund in New Zealand. What is its mission? What's its vision? Well, our our vision is thriving communities across the Wellington region. Uh, Our mission is really about equity and inclusion for uh, communities in our region that experience inequity and exclusion. And you're a grant maker or you're a funder, but you're also sort of a community partner. Yeah, what does an organization look like? And give us a feel of the size of the team and a bit about how they operate and... Yeah, yeah. We um, we do a little bit uh, of everything, but our primary purpose is about granting. So we're a philanthropic funder um, and we, we do work with community partners. We like to think that we work with them in a way that is really relational and that supports them in ways other than just funding, but primarily we're a philanthropic funder um, of community organisations. And give us a little bit of an idea of the, the history of the fund. So you have a large amount of capital and you gift the the interest off that capital each each year on an annual basis yeah that's exactly right so sort of the whakapapa or the history the origins of community trusts they really stretch back um 200 years actually not in new zealand but uh, a guy called henry duncan who was from a really small scottish village um of ruthwell established the first savings bank in, in in like 1810 and really it was the world first bank that enabled lower income uh, members of the population to develop and establish saving habits and really that movement was the first social enterprise in a way because not only did they enable lower income families to establish saving habits but also the profits from that bank were then channeled back into philanthropic activity and charitable purposes. So in, gosh, I think 1847, the first um, version of that came to Aotearoa here in New Zealand. And then by the sort of 1950s and 60s, that model of the trustee savings bank was prolific in New Zealand. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is because that's where the origin of the 12 community trusts of which Wellington Community Funder One came from. So really our investment money that you talked about um, came from the sale of the trust bank to Westpac. And that money that we generated from the sale back in, gosh, 1988 has been held for community uh, by 12 different community trusts around the country. And you're right, the money that we earn through our investments generates enough income that we then distribute that income through grants to community. 
And you're set up as an independent charity, aren't you? But there is some government input into how you're governed, like how your board of trustees are set up? Yes, yes. So we are an independent philanthropic funder. You're quite right. So we set our own strategies and each of the 12 community trusts do operate quite autonomously, although we we do call ourselves part of the same family. So we work together on things. But our governance structure, we are governed by um, trust boards and those board members are appointed by the Minister for Finance of the Government of the Day. So that's sort of the connection. So they're, they're appointed individuals who generally have played a really important role in their community. They bring expertise in a number of things, often in finance and community development and investment, and they're appointed by ministers. And that's sort of where the connection ends. And that's why we call ourselves independent, because we set our own strategies. We fund what the trustees believe are the most important things to fund. And um, those terms of trustees last for between four and eight years, depending on whether they're reappointed for a second term. And in terms of your strategy, and you talk about that, and and you had a a rebrand, you were called a trust, and now you're a fund. But if you really decide to drill down and and really aim your support at the hardest to reach, the most marginalised, or what is your strategy for funding? I love talking about our strategy because uh, I feel like we have completely uh, revolutionised the way we focus our funding in the last couple of years. So Wellington, pr- previously we were called Wellington Community Trust and we had a tiny change of name to Wellington Community Fund. But, but a couple of years ago, um, we were still very much what I describe as a broad-based funder. So we have a small um, grant. We're one of the smaller trusts. So we grant about $3 million a year to community. And we were giving a little bit to almost everyone. When I started a couple of years ago, the board had started, the board of trustees had started to think about how they might better use the amount of funding that we had to give uh, for a more impactful purpose. So they were starting on this journey uh, for, for a couple of years about targeting our funding to those who needed it the most. I think I was fortunate enough to come along at a time when we're a really pivotal time, actually, because we had the first COVID pandemic-related national-scale lockdown in New Zealand, in Aotearoa, and I um, started my role when we were in that first lockdown. So I had my welcome online with trustees and team. And that, out of something really negative, out of something that was really scary at the time, uh, we tipped everything on its head. So we went from having complex, multiple criteria, funding a tiny amount of the ask for many, many, many different types of organisations and many of whom were doing really good things but for the general public and not necessarily for those who needed it the most. We had more complicated application processes. We had funding rounds where there were deadlines and that created I think a lot of stress for community organisations who were, you know, trying to get their application in at a certain time. We flipped all of that and we went from something like 12 criteria down to three very simple criteria that were really about community need, self-determination and community aspiration. So we, we're stuck with that plan. And so you're right, we are focused on advancing equity for those within our communities 
who experience inequity and disadvantage. We have unashamedly prioritised our funding to those we think need it most, and we've based that on some evidence that we did, a research that we did that provided evidence of communities within our region who were struggling more, who were experiencing disadvantage more. So we're we're a much different organisation now than we were a couple of years ago in terms of our focus. Yeah, a couple of the words you threw out there, which I thought are really interesting. So relational philanthropy, trust-based philanthropy, and that's removing barriers to sort of, you know, success and and accessing your funds. But is it also a lot around if you're going to focus your efforts on certain groups of people that you help build the capacity of the organizations and the the people servicing their needs? Would that be crucial? And, And a little bit about that. And then who are typically the people who need your funds or actually your funds the most? Is it from one community or a certain part of Wellington? Or Great question. So the communities that we identified that really were um, experiencing the most inequity and disadvantage and exclusion were people from a Māori background, Māori communities, Pacific people, Middle East and Latin American and African and youth and children. So youth and children sort of stands out as slightly slightly separate, but it is uh, a, in our region, we have a really, really high um, uh, statistical kind of percentage of young people. And really, we felt that that was a really key area for us to focus on. We also, although we, we are um, a funder of the whole sort of wider Wellington region from Ōtaki, Kapiti Coast, Porirua, Upper Hutt, Lower Hutt, and the Wellington area, we identified that there were a couple of regions that actually needed us more. And so we have a priority for Ōtaki, Lower Hutt and Porirua. That doesn't mean we don't fund um, the other parts of our region. It just means that in terms of prioritisation, we kind of have a hierarchy of um, things that we look for uh, with community organisations first. We have had to reduce barriers to accessing accessing our funding and we've had to really dial up our engagement with communities that we didn't formally have particularly good strong relationships with. So we've dedicated time, effort, energy and resource to doing better, basically, or trying to do better for those communities that we had underserved in the past. And changing tact and and looking back at your career. So you started in insurance, by the look of it, you didn't, prior to that, you did a psychology degree, but you you ended up working for a long period, a fair decent period in government. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Jay, you've done your background reading, Mark. <laughs> I, um, I did. I did a psychology criminology degree. I've lived in Wellington my whole life, and so uh, I was the first member of my family to ever go to university. Uh, and I mean, like in generations, the first member of my family. So it was a bit of a big deal for me. And I really was unsure of what I wanted to do and I went, I sort of stumbled into insurance and ended up working in claims management of all things for five years, corporate environment, started in a call centre, talking to people every day and then managing income protection claims. And it seems like a world away from where I am now, but you know, the, the common theme through all of that that led me then into government was that I actually, I love working with people. I actually really enjoy talking with people and hearing about these circumstances. And when you're in an insurance company, you're at the end of a call centre line, you are actually hearing about things that have had quite a big impact on people. You know, they're, they're talking about 
traumas they've experienced or particularly in the area of income protection, health issues they've experienced that have robbed them of the life they thought they were going to live. And, you know, that had its had its place in, I guess, evolving my thinking. And I remember distinctly sitting in a building on the terrace in Wellington, one of the main streets, working in this insurance agency and looking out the window and seeing the Beehive, which is our uh, government where our government is housed, um, primarily in, in Wellington and New Zealand. And I remember looking there and thinking that I really wanted to contribute to a lot of the good work that government does, that government agencies at least attempt to do. And so I made, a, I guess, a values-based decision that I wanted to move to the government sector. And I wanted everything that I did in my day, this was my perhaps slightly naive perspective, I wanted everything that I did in my day to felt like it mattered. And so I moved to government. Yeah, and I, I worked there for gosh, 17-odd years um, before making the leap to the philanthropic sector. And before we jump into that, I'm just really fascinated by that university not necessarily being an aspiration for generations of your family. What what were the barriers? What did you overcome to make that jump? I grew up in, in, a, in a little place called Nainai in Lower Hutt in Wellington, and we didn't own our own home. We lived in state housing. We didn't have a lot of money at all. My brothers and I all respectively left home when we were 16 to live on our own. My um, my mum had some health issues and my dad ran his own business for a while and then ended up working as a school caretaker. So income was really, really tight. And I think historically for my for my mum, she had immigrated from England as a child and she came from a really big Catholic family, a really big working class Catholic family where uh, education wasn't as much of a priority because, quite frankly, probably survival was more of a priority. There was, you know, seven surviving children in a family of 14 children. And so things were a bit tough for them. And my dad had moved around various relatives growing up as a child. And so it had kind of a, I guess, a disjointed upbringing himself. And so he was very creative and was an artist and a photographer. And Aotearoa is now a much easier place for artists and creatives to operate. But but back in his day, I think it was quite hard for him to pursue all of the different types of careers that he might have pursued if the times had been different. So we were raised with a really strong work ethic, but it didn't really extend sort of to that, you know, you must get a degree and you must pursue tertiary education. Ironically, me and my two brothers have actually all turned out pretty good. <laughs> we, we often laugh about it, but uh, I was the first who went, who went to university and, um, and it was sort of considered a bit weird initially. And what in, you know, jumping forward a bit, wanting to make, or that sense that you want to make everyday count uh, and kind of more purposeful, if you like, out of insurance. Do you look back and say, actually, some of that was from my your upbringing, like how you were brought up by your parents or your relatives? Or absolutely, like we were. I think being raised in a family where we had some challenges of our own, um, so around you know my my mum's health and and not having a lot of money. I think we 
learnt to really value the skills and knowledge and things that we did have, the life skills and and life gained knowledge and expertise that we did have. And so always we're sort of thinking about, you know, what was happening in our neighbourhood, who we were helping with. Just We didn't even call it volunteering. It was just like normal stuff that you did. If someone around the corner needed a meal, you made it. If um, there was a job that needed doing at the school, you did it. If there was you know, just, just, we just sort of grew up like that and we didn't call it volunteering. It was just what, uh, particularly my dad did. And we were really raised. He was always, he always said to me, you know, you can never, you know, judge another person's reality because it's their reality. And so he always had this, I guess, empathy for others and he probably instilled that in us. So we had a sense of social justice. I had a sense of wanting to raise my children in a way where they had more access to to things that perhaps I didn't as a child. So I was kind of quite driven, I guess, in that, in that way. But I was also really mindful of even with the life that we led, we still had heaps of privilege. You know, just because of the colour of our skin, we're Pākehā, and we had so much privilege just because of that, which doesn't feel fair, but it is what it is. And so I've always sort of had a sense of wanting to, I don't know, uh, just use what strengths I've got and see the strengths in others and help them develop them and build their capability as well. And so you end up in in government, making that transition from corporate to government. What was that like? What did you come across? And it was in child, uh, child and family services, so at the hard end of stuff? Yeah, yes. So my first role in government was in possibly one of the most challenging government departments, which is now Oranga Tamariki. At the time was Children and Young Persons Service. Uh you know, my first impression, actually, which I wasn't expecting, was I was amazed by, by how incredibly intelligent the <laughs> the people in government were. These public servants who you sometimes get a negative view of, they were smart, they cared about people, and I think that every one of them actually chose to get up every day and intended to do good, even though um, the systems and the circumstances they were working in sometimes made that difficult. So I started off just in an entry-level sort of advisor level doing, you know, what we called accreditation work, which was we would go out to the the not-for-profit organisations that were contracted by Childies and Family to provide care services for children in care, and we would look at the quality of those and provide advice and recommendations about how they could improve the services that they were delivering. So it was very much kind of working with community right from the outset, not without its challenges. And you ended up focusing more on children and young people and, and sort of what it looks like moving uh, ministries or moving departments. Was that what motivated that real focus on young people? And was that anything to do with having children yourself? Yeah, um, it wasn't to do with having children myself initially. I mean, now I've got three teenagers and so, you know, um, I'm very interested and focused on youth. But what I noticed when I first started working with the Children and Young People Service is that there was a really often a negative narrative around children and young people. And yet I saw, and many others did who I worked with, I saw a different side to the experiences of those young people. So there was a lot of reasons why sometimes the way that they behaved were playing out the way they did. But actually there was so much creativity, resilience, and just like wonder um, amongst young people. And so I really started to uh, feel that I wanted to do two things. And I guess one was I really 
felt deeply passionate about improving the well-being for children and young people in Aotearoa in New Zealand. And also I felt really deeply passionate about elevating their voice in things and elevating the narrative around young people because they have so much to say that is good and um, we don't listen enough. So, yeah, so then my career kind of went in that direction where I was really very much focused on youth and ended up at the Ministry of Youth Development and and uh, pretty much the rest of my government career was was around um, child and youth well-being. You've been in business, you've been in government, you're now in the third sector or charity sector. Do you think there's power to sort of sol- solve some of our social and possibly environmental issues through those, you know, three areas getting together and collaborating and and working in harmony? Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, I feel like I'm really fortunate to be where I am now. I love working in the philanthropic sector. I love how connected it means I am to more of the grassroots community activity that you don't, you don't get to be as connected in government. But I think all of the, all of these agencies, government agencies, philanthropic funders and community organisations who are doing the doing, if we can all work together, actually, you know, that's where, oh, it's cheesy, but that's where the magic happens, right? So we all have a different role in that ecosystem. So philanthropic funders, I mean, some of the stuff that we fund currently is not the sexy, exciting stuff, and, and that's fine. It's salaries. It's keeping the lights on for community organisations. And a lot of that stuff is actually not funded by government contracts. So I think there's a real role for what we fund in our communities that enable the communities to get on with delivering the kinds of programs and initiatives that they know community needs because they're the best place to understand what that need is, not not us and not government. Do your kids know what you do? <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> they um, they know that I help to um, manage a, uh, an investment portfolio that generates granting income for communities. So they know that and they know that we work with communities and, and give money away. That's how they would describe um, what I do. But they also think that I spend a lot of time in the office, which is a little bit inaccurate because I probably only spend 30% of time in the office. But uh, yeah, I think they, um, I think they have a general sense of what I do. How hard was it having children and being in professions that were demanding? Like when you look back and think, like it was hard, and but a lot has changed. Or you know, what was the journey like for you as, as a woman and as a mum? Well, I had three kids under the age of three and a half, so that was that was really challenging. And actually, I still say that that was the hardest. The hardest job of my life was definitely leaving the paid workforce. I I took time off to actually look after the kids. And I did volunteer work and things like that instead. And I still say that that seven, it was seven years of, you know, only the odd contract and primarily looking after the three kids. It was a real privilege, but I still say it was the hardest work of, of, of ever, of my life. And I do think in some ways, you know, I might have been a better mum had I had a little bit more balance around paid work and something for myself and looking after the kids. So, you know, I think things are different now. There's so, especially now since COVID, there's so much flexibility now and, and more empathy in the workforce about looking after your people and allowing them to have more balance in their lives. 
I mean, and I know that I speak from a place of real privilege because in the philanthropic sector, that is a real priority. And in the not-for-profit sector, it's not always that easy. I know that there's some incredibly hardworking people who just don't get that that level of flexibility. But I think it, it's easier now, um, potentially raising a family and having a career than it was, you know, 18 years ago. Yeah, good point. Is there a concern that women end up having to do like full-time mum and full-time career because they're, you know, they're at home, they can do both, but they end up doing too much. Like there's too much of a, a draw on them. Is that, is that a concern, do you think? Yeah, it probably is. And it's probably more, maybe more prevalent in the corporate sector. I mean, with our trust, uh, with our community fund, Wellington Community Fund, we've, we've got a very small team and a couple of couple of us have children and there's a real uh, tolerance and understanding of family first so we'll have you know kids in the office and <laughs> kids in the background on teams calls and there's a real acceptance there but I know it's not that way for all organizations you know and often you know we when we're when we're working with community organizations you know we're not just dealing uh, with one person in a meeting room, it's not like that. It's it's community, so there are family members and children around and pets and you name it. It's um, and I love that. I love working in that way, and I think it's really important for people to be able to do that. So, 2017, you decide to leave government. What was behind your decision to to leave? I was super burnt out. If I'm really honest, that's the honest truth. I was super burnt out. I'd been running the Ministry of Youth Development, which was a small ministry, but but it was a big role, working with ministers and developing a new strategy. And I was feeling like it was time for me to have a change. And I wanted to get closer to working. I wanted to be closer to community organisations than I was able to be in government. So I took three months off. And in that time, I picked up a maternity leave contract for a philanthropic fund or a corporate um, philanthropic fund, a Vodafone Foundation, and spent 10 months um, covering maternity leave for a, a very great colleague of mine, um, who I think has probably been on your yeah. podcast, Lana Evans. Yeah. yeah. So I covered for her when she had her first child and absolutely loved it. I loved the the freedom of it. I loved the ability to really see how funding makes things happen for community organisations. And there wasn't quite the same level of red tape and the sort of slower bureaucratic processes that I was sort of starting to get a little bit weary of in the government sector. Um, I wanted to use what I'd learnt there and bring it into the philanthropic sector and um, had developed a lot of relationships while I was in government with philanthropic players in, in Aotearoa in New Zealand. I wanted to kind of use that. And I loved the fact that Wellington Community Fund, as I said, was sort of at this point in time where I think the trustees were looking for change and they were looking for a CE, they had a vacancy and they were looking for a CE that could really help them to drive forward with a new direction. So it was a really exciting opportunity and um, yeah, I just feel very lucky every day to work for Wellington Community Fund. And what, just going back, you talked about burnout, what did burnout look like for you? What were the symptoms? What were the things that were impacting your day to day? So you know, you referenced before how um, challenging it can sometimes be raising a family while having a career. I just felt like I wasn't seeing my kids. I wasn't spending time with my family. I wasn't being a good friend to the people that I cared about. I wasn't 
volunteering my time in any way because I felt so overextended at work. And, you know, a lot of that was about choices I was making. It wasn't necessarily that, you know, the organisation was putting that expectation and pressure on me. But when you work directly with ministers, there is a sense of urgency and responsiveness that you just have to have. And and that just meant that it's not a, you know, eight to five job. It's a, a lot of hours and the the content of the work, you know, the the focus on trying to improve the well-being of young people when you'd be well aware yourself that young people are really experiencing difficult times, that weighed really heavy on me and I never felt like I was doing enough. And I think that's a really good sign that you're hitting burnout is if you just don't feel that you are ever enough and doing enough. And so that was really where, where I was heading towards at the end of that time. And so you're in the interview process with the Wellington Community Fund. And did you really, really want it? Is it one of those things that, or did you actually weren't 100% sure what they were or how they operated or what your role would, you know, do, what was your kind of state of mind when you were going through that process with them? Oh, Mark, I really wanted it. I, I really, I really wanted the job. I really wanted to work with that group of trustees. I wanted to work with the communities that they were serving. You know, I'm born and bred in this region, love this region, you know, wanted to give back to Wellington. But you know what? I didn't think I had a chance. (laughs) I just thought I'm going to put my hat in the ring and maybe I'll get an interview um, and it'll be really good experience for me and I might get some more connections. And and, um, at that stage, I decided that I really wanted to be in the philanthropic sector. And yeah, so I really wanted, I really wanted the job. Why didn't you think you had a chance? What was what behind your thinking, do you think? Well, I thought, you know, that I, while I'd had lots of experience in the public sector and the government sector, I thought that perhaps they would be looking for someone who had more of a grounding in the not-for-profit or the philanthropic sector. But what I learned through the process was, you know, years of working in government and contracting community organisations for services and working with community organisations had kind of given me a different kind of skill set, but one that was really complementary for the philanthropic sector. So I think they saw that focus that I'd always had on social services and well-being and on social justice and need and thought, you know, that I could probably make that transition. And I'm really, really glad that they took a chance on me. And you would have been up against some stiff competition. And do you remember the day when you got the call? Like, do you remember? Yeah, I do. I do. I, um, it was an extremely, um, attractive role for a lot of people. I think that, um, the 12 community trusts around the country, the CE roles are, are a really important. They're important roles within the philanthropic sector because there are 12 community trusts. We, we represent quite a lot of the philanthropic investment in New Zealand. And so lots and lots of people had applied. They're well-known trusts. And I went through, you know, several different interviews and presentations to the board. And I just, even right up into the last, when I knew I was one of two, I just thought, no, it won't be me. And I actually, when the, when the chair at the time rang me to let me know, I remember just being silent because I thought I'd misheard him offer the role to me. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And so I actually felt really tearful because... It had been quite a journey and I just had a sense that I had a purpose with this organisation and that there was a place for me there and that I knew that I could contribute something there and um, felt really 
just so privileged and excited to have that opportunity to do that. Yeah, because you're born, brought up in Wellington and you talked about your family being really influential. It must be wonderful to play a really important role in the future of the, of the region, of the city and have this role. Yeah, I, um, I love Wellington. You know, uh, I think it's a great place to live. I think it could be even better than, better than it is now. And it is really special to see and meet people who are giving so much of themselves to make this a better place for all of the people that live in our communities to, you know, increase people's sense of inclusion and to um, increase uh, equity so that everybody here gets to thrive. I love I love meeting with community organisations who are doing just incredible work. The hardest thing about this job is saying no to those organisations who are doing something great but are just um, not prioritised by us because we have limited means. I mean, if we had endless dollars, um, there'd be no shortage of things that we would love to fund and grant money to. But unfortunately, we have to make those difficult choices. Absolutely. And one thing fascinating me is, is the origins of your name, our blog loss. What are the origins? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm not Greek. It's a Greek surname. I'm married into a Greek family. So, um, my husband, John, is a first born uh, Greek New Zealander. His parents were from a little, from an island in Greece called Lasvos, from a little town called Metalini. And they immigrated here separately and met in, in Wellington, um, and married. And he's one of three. So, yeah. So the name is, um, a Greek name, you know, and, and I married into that pretty amazing full-on family. <laughs> Wonderful. And yeah. just to look to wrap up, in terms of the you know the future and, and you've got a trust-based approach to philanthropy, you really listen to the community, you, you have strong relations with the organisations you fund. You've also more recently started to focus on the environment and, and your role in that. What is the future for the, for the fund under your leadership? We will always be I believe, about advancing equity for those who need us the most. We'll never be an enormous funder. So while we, we're here for perpetuity, so we're here for good, we think about intergenerational equity. So I think we'll always be about advancing equity and inclusion for communities who experience disadvantage and exclusion in New Zealand. We're also really, really um, aware of the impacts that climate change will have on a just transition for communities who already experience disadvantage. We know that moving towards a Tika transition or just transition for a, for a net zero world is going to require a whole lot of collaborative effort, collective effort, and we want to make sure that the communities who are experiencing disadvantage now are not left behind in the process. So I think that we're increasingly going to see a focus on climate action and um, with that social justice and equity lens. So uh, we we recently established as part of the 12 community trusts a funder's commitment for climate action. And really the, the, that is in recognition of the important role that community-based funders play in building better outcomes for our environment and our communities. And it's really about holding us to account and also trying to increase the philanthropic spending in Aotearoa towards environmental and climate-related causes because it's only about 4% of philanthropic funding at the moment that goes to those things. 
And as we all know, you know, the environment and the ability to participate in all of the things that you require to have a good life, you know, it really affects your well-being. So for me, a TIKA transition, a just transition to a carbon zero world is is a really important part of that equity lens as well. Yeah, wonderful. Lynn, massive thank you for joining me on Purposely. Thanks so much, Mark. Lovely to talk with you. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do. 